Hi, this is Joel Blackstock with the Taproot Therapy Collective podcast. And today I sat down with someone who I've been a longtime fan of and been reading since I was in high school, David Tacey. Um, Tacey is kind of a, a public intellectual in Australia. He's a writer of many books. Um, one of the first books that brought me to Jung um, called How to Read Jung uh, and the Jung Reader. He's a professor at La Trobe University. Uh, in Melbourne, and he's also uh, a professor at the Australian Center for Christianity and Culture. Um, to list all of his accomplishments would take a long, long time. But uh, Tacey is a student of anthropology, religion, sociology, um, and the history of psychoanalytic therapy. So he goes back and knows a lot of the history of the profession and is a very interesting writer with a lot of very unique insights. Um, the conversation covers a lot of Jung's early life and work and exactly what uh, Carl Jung was. Um, also, comparative religion, politics, and all the things in the middle. So, um, I hope that you enjoy the interview, and I'm going to go ahead and roll that now. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. Well, I was interested, like, in a lot of the uh, one of the things that we talked about is just kind of because our, our the podcast is for people who may not have like a huge uh, vested interest and all, they may not have like a ton of uh, knowledge about all these things. You know, they probably have encountered Jung a little bit. Um, but I mean, one of the things we talked about is just that, like, Jung is such a big topic. People kind of cherry pick different things in a way that doesn't make sense a lot of the time. And mm. I think American Jungianism particularly is bad about just sanitizing it where it's like it's almost like well it's religion plus supportive counseling that's what it means to be a union analyst or it's but you know they kind of discard the 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 process or the parts of it that are, are maybe threatening to them or, or harder harder to do something with um i mean do you have anything to say about that or well jung is a, a huge area um i mean i've spent 50 years in the area and um i don't feel like even begun to really cover all bases. Uh, Jung is a is a is a kind of a universe of thought within himself, and there are parts of the there's still parts of the collective works I haven't even read. Um, they're so dense, especially uh, the last work he did on alchemy. Um, you virtually need a much better knowledge of Latin than I have mm. to um, work through those. As you know, Jung often dropped Latin, ancient Greek, Arabic, um, French, Italian t- terms and phrases, and it's quite inhibiting. So that's why mm, a London publisher um, asked me some years ago to write a book called um, how to read Jung, because there's really no way that people could just dive in unprepared. Um, perhaps the only way of diving in unprepared would be to to read his memoirs, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, is a very accessible book. And uh, the other book that's accessible is Essays on Contemporary Events, um, and also, of course, Man and His Symbols, but the problem with man and his symbols, he's deliberately trying to 
um, <laughs> reach a wide audience, and it's almost a kind of a kindergarten book. It's um, a publisher book, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was... he, he's responding to the publisher in London who wanted him to do an introduction, and and I think that was John Freeman who who interviewed him on the BBC on a number of occasions. Um, so that book is not terribly terrific. I'd rather suggest. People start with memories, dreams, reflections, if they want to dive in. Um, in the collected works, well, even to buy them is a big financial mm -hmm. investment. Um, but the one to start with, I think, is volume seven, two essays on analytical psychology, um, is a nice introduction to the field. When I was um, young, um, someone gave me Eon. Uh, or ion as it's pronounced mm -hmm. um a i o n and that was far too um uh, too advanced for me i think i was 20 19 or 20 and i couldn't make head or tail of it and too many ancient languages and too many scientific terms so um just just getting your toe into the jung field is quite a, a challenge for, for starting off it's hard and to that, understand what it is i mean a lot of your work and john Beebe's work with mbti brought me into it um because we're kind of in a cognitive behavioral therapy desert here mm -hmm. depth psychology is just not something that you encounter the people if you encounter right. it it's just to write it off you know either like okay Jung invented the collective unconscious and did nothing that was the little bullet point in the psychology 101 chapter <laughs> moving on and um yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and I think what gets people too is that there's a ton of phases over his life. And I mean, I have a hard time following him into the alchemy stuff. I just, I mean, I believe that early science probably was projective and that he's right that people were projecting psychology onto, you know, pre scientific science. It's just mm -hmm. not super interesting <laughs> to me personally. Um, mm -hmm. But there's these phases that he goes through as a person. And I think a lot of different Jungian scholars or analysts relate to different parts of those phases and they kind of try and make that all of it, even though he changes quite a bit um, and maybe yeah. doesn't know what he even thinks he's, you know, chewing on things as he's, as he's uh, growing. I've just finished reading Catafalque by Peter Kingsley. Um, and that's a very fascinating book. Um, uh, another, another writer from the UK and he, he adopts the view, which I have a lot of sympathy with, that most Jungians have got Jung completely wrong, that they've domesticated him. That would be my experience. Yeah, they've, they've um, you know, they've turned him into a pussy cat, but actually he's a raging lion and a very dangerous and threatening thinker in the tradition of Friedrich Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or Schiller or any of his German forebears. And of course, um, one of the tendencies that America does uh, when someone becomes popular, America tends to make them more simple than they are. Mm. Um, they make them somehow more digestible and more domesticated. And um, it's a strange habit that America has with, with them. Uh, popularizing people and often getting them wrong in the process. But Jung, according to Peter Kingsley, Jung is a full-blown mystic and a religious prophet 
and that the Jungians don't want to admit this because they they are invested with the idea of him being a scientist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I met the Jung family in Switzerland some years ago to ask for permission to write a book which I've published called The Jung Reader, which has come out in several languages now. It designed that book was designed to replace Joseph Campbell's book, uh, The Portable Jung, which was edited mm-hmm. by Joseph Campbell in 1972, which is a long time ago. And there's been a massive amount in the Jung field written since 1972, um, you know, changed our views of Jung com- almost completely. So I wrote that and I met the, um, the family in um, in their house in Zurich and they still have this impression that Jung is a scientist. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm, I found it really hard to understand. I mean, he's a philosopher first and foremost. He's a philosopher who works in the field of psychology. That's how I would define him. And um, his philosophy is, of course, extremely dependent on theology as well and on ancient medieval studies and classical studies. He's a kind of a Renaissance man, a Renaissance thinker, and he seems to be fully grasped, have full, full grasp of several disciplines, including biology, anthropology, archaeology, um, physics. Of course, he worked with the Nobel Prize winning physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And before that, he worked, of course, with Einstein um, in, in Zurich. They were in the same institute together, the Polytechnic Institute, and they befriended each other. And um, it was Einstein who suggested to Jung that he might explore the field of synchronicity. That came from Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both liked red wine, and they would go to Jung's holiday house at Bollingen on the lake uh, called the Bollingen Tower, and apparently they had rip-roaring times down there, but unfortunately there's no um, record um, of the con- well, you know, the conversations between Einstein and Jung, mm-hmm. and I, I think that would be... Imagine what kind of gold mine that would be today to release this type of information. Well, I think there was a just voracious hunger for him to create a kind of lens to view human experience that was a unified principle, the unified theory of everything. You know, there was no discipline left out yes. because like the the difference in Jung and I, I think what a lot of other people who are doing objective sciences is that his psychology is purely phenomenological. I mean, it is what he is feeling on the inside. He's not really worried about what is on the outside as much as what mm-hmm. is the experience of this like. And I think exactly. in my, uh, I mean, and you know more about this than I do, but like what I feel when you read his career is that he tries to be a scientist until he can't be anymore. And then he, <laughs> and then, and he's worried about the perception. He's worried about this. And then he gets to a point where it's like, you know, I can't do this scientifically. Yeah. It has to be this direct experience, descent into whatever. That is beautifully and that, said. That kind of May looks I crazy quote to you on that. Uh, that is a great quotable quote. He tries to be a scientist until he can't do it anymore. 
that is so good, Joel. Um, and there's probably some of that inner voice where, you know, Freud yeah. is pushing mm -hmm. him for a long time to be a scientist, yeah. get this mm -hmm. weird new age stuff out of there so that people will respect, you know, this yeah. profession. Um, because don't forget that Freud got rid of Jung in 1913 because he felt that Jung was could be seen as a prophet or a mystic or a spiritual leader. And but did Jung get rid of Freud? You know, he's maybe still having a fight with someone who is not there for a while. He was having a fight with someone who wasn't fighting back all his life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can read the last pieces that Jung ever wrote in, like, Memory Streams, Reflections, Man and His Symbols. Jung is still fighting Freud, although Freud died 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but absolutely right about that. Um, when they met, it must have been absolutely electric, the atmosphere. I think the first time they met, they talked nonstop for nine or ten hours straight. You know, they had a lot in common, mm -hmm. but oh, unfortunately more, uh, they had more not in common than they did have in common. But both of them were committed to the to the unconscious which, by the way, um, Freud called it the subconscious. Mm -hmm. And Jung said, no, we can't call it the subconscious. That's too demeaning. Let's just call it the unconscious. So Freud took Jung's advice, um, and Freud stopped after, you know, after he met Jung. He stopped using the word subconscious. But um, Jung also offered, Jung, uh, offered Freud the word complex. Um, mm -hmm. That was Jung's own making, which came out of his word association tests, he started to realize that people had complexes um, when they were asked certain words and there was a, a long pause. Jung figured the reason there, were, <clears throat> there was a long pause was because people uh, were confused on that particular, something had triggered something in them. So Jung called it a complex and Freud took that up. And um, when he split with Freud, uh, that's when he invented his theory of psychological types, um, which of course is now a, a huge industry in its own right. Every workplace in the world uses the Myers-Briggs type. We change it just enough to patent it and call it something else. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, sometimes these people ask me to speak about this background <clears throat> to psychological types, you know, introversion, extroversion. Um, Jung, Jung uses those terms, and every time we talk about introverts and extroverts, we're quoting Jung without knowing it. Yeah, And um, that's why Jung invented that, because he could see that Freud was a different type to himself mm -hmm. and that part of the reason of their falling out wasn't just personal difficulties or faults but they were looking at the world through different lenses. And Adler, and so, too. I think he saw Freud, Adler, yes. and him so passionately and Precisely. going in very different directions. Yeah. Adler probably had more in common than you, than Freud did. Mm, the compensation exactly. and tension of opposites is a lot like yes. uh, you yes. know, the shadow. The, the power struggle. Power was very important to Adler. As well, and the idea that him. for every external part that's big, there is an internal part that is big. That is unseen. You know, they're both noticing that probably because they're sitting with Freud, who, you know, has a lot yeah, that but, he never deals with. But the problem is that 
Freud wasn't at all grateful. I mean, Jung spent several years of his life <clears throat> constructing this theory of psychological types, almost as an apology to Freud as why, as to explain why they split. But Freud never received the, the, the gift in the right spirit. You know, he just ignored Jung um, from then on. And, of course, it was a very Adlerian-like power struggle between Freud and Jung. But Freud had coordinated this so-called special committee that sat in London under the um, leadership of Ernest Jones to try and set, test the scientific credibility of Jung's ideas. Um, naturally, Ernest Jones, who was a close associate of Freud, came up with a view that Jung's scientific ideas weren't really empirically valid and that, that Jung had gone off into philosophizing. And, well, it's um, an intuitive and felt psychology. You know, it's mm. not one that you can measure and turn into a number like behaviorism or, or cognitive therapy to a, a certain Yeah. So, but that, that, um, that London group was so savage toward Jung that I, I actually feel that he never really recovered his reputation that um, that that was so influential, especially in Europe um, and parts of America as well, that in Canada, that um, Jung was sort of completely knocked out of uh, out of business, and uh, hmm. he had to rely on his close associates, most of whom, by the way, were Jewish, um, and yet. You know, uh, Freud kept claiming that Jung was anti-Semitic. And uh, so he, Freud played the race card on Jung. And I've written about this extensively. Um, and I thought it was very unfortunate because, of course, this was during the Nazi era. And so um, Freud was very careful to try and pin um, uh, anti-Semitism on Jung during the Nazi era which basically meant that, that Jung, Jung's reputation was sunk. Um, I'm, one thing that fascinates me, Joel, is that mm, Jung's relationship to the Nazis um, was on the whole a very negative one. Like, you know, he wrote essays called Votan, which was about mm -hmm. the madness of Hitler. Um, whereas someone like Martin Heidegger, the philosopher, probably mm -hmm. the most philosopher of the 20th century um had, was a full-blown member of the nazi party and somehow or other he he's re rehabilitated pretty fast yeah. for some reason how did that happen you know i mean or the scientist was... you know the rock you look at von braun and a lot of these people who had to know about the supply chain and things that we wave yeah. and forgive them because they're useful yeah, so Heidegger was forgiven. I mean, admittedly, it took a while. Heidegger was was only forgiven quite relatively recently, you know, during the 1980s, um, late 70s. But Jung has still got the stain of anti-Semitism. Well, there's some, there's some hit pieces. I mean, I think one of the things that, it may be part of the reason the Red Book got published, but you know, Richard Knoll has these books where he attacks Jung and says all this stuff that I really just don't think is true at all. You know, he says right. he was trying to start a cult and it was like he didn't want an institute. 
he the only reason he did it was he was like they're going to do this with or without me so i might as well be a little bit involved in it um you know he asked not to be lionized after he died you know there's if he was trying to be kind of a mad prophet or start a cult he did a bad job of it um but one of the things with noel because i i actually read richard noel's stuff before i read uh young before i knew a lot about Mm -hmm. young and so i was willing to kind of accept the theory and then it was slowly like what because you know he he says you know that a big tenet of Jungianism, not Richard Noel doesn't say this, but like a big part of Jung's psychology is that religion is projective. You know, we we t- take something internal and then we need the world to function a certain way. And then we start to believe certain things through mythology or ritual or and, and, and that process is how you can understand what's going on on the inside and the deepest part of the unconscious. And so mm-hmm. as you're reading the book and, and Noel essentially is like, well, yeah, you know, the biggest organizing principle of our entire civilization and society since the Bronze Age, um, it doesn't correspond to psychology at all. It's just created randomly in a vacuum, totally removed from the psychology of the people making it. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't is he is he Catholic or something? I mean, I guess if you're saying that the the word of God is handed down in this book, then you need to separate that from psychology. But with any kind of with any kind of healthy perspective on religion, how can you say that it, nothing, none of that corresponds to a psychological state? Nothing that our psychology is not part of our religion. I mean, that, that we're picking these things at random to to build civilizations yeah. around. That's wild. Well, I think um, Richard Knoll started with very malicious intent. You know, he had obviously read some Jung, but I don't think he read him correctly. And I think that Richard Knoll had deliberately misread Jung. See, one of the big things that separates uh, psychology and religion is the symbolic attitude. Mm-hmm. So in, in depth psychology, every, every, pretty much everything is, is read through the lens of symbolism. Mm-hmm. But, but Richard Knoll uh, is persistent in his tendency to read what Jung says literally. You know, yeah. And to, to read it literally is to make it almost bizarre and um and, and religion could... is not literal it's not a literal thing you know i was raised no. episcopalian and mm. it's there's a certain point that some people get to where they're like okay that's an allegory that's an allegory that's an allegory but from here on out it's literal you know the first book there's a snake that is talking about eating fruit most people you know or maybe not everyone but most people who are christian in america are probably like well you know that's that's a, a myth it's an allegory for something but then you get a little further in the bible and they're like no but that part you can't and then some people are willing to make the whole thing a metaphor um but it's you know how much your religion is in control of your life or 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 where you stop being a scientist Mm. and start being a person of faith is where do you stop that i've written a whole book on this topic so i could talk for this for an hour those books tend to not sell a whole lot in the U.S. I don't know how they do in Australia. You can write books of religion and sell them, but you can't write books about religion and yeah. sell them. Uh, one of my books recently is called Religion as Metaphor, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's all about this question. And it 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 says that there is um, a tendency for Christian for Christians to read the Old Testament metaphorically. You know that the, the the, the Eden, Garden of Eden creation myth. A lot of Christians mm-hmm. are happy to read that as a myth. One of my students said to me, come on, she said, you can't take a book that starts with a talking snake literally 
<laughs> I some people a... do. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard yeah. defenses of the snake. But I imagine there are many people in the Deep South and the Midwest of America who still read the Bible, literally. That's the feeling I get. I used to live in the States some years ago. Texas. And you, were, you used to live in Texas, too. So there's, Yeah. There's... And a lot of people in Texas are reading, still reading the Bible, literally. You know, they've not caught on to the modern interpretation about reading it through symbol, myth, and metaphor. In fact, I did think about calling my book Religion as Myth, but my U.S. publisher advised me against that because in America, like in most countries, the word myth means falsehood, you know, like it has no merit. It's just, uh, it's just um, uh, untruth. And I didn't want that because I have a very strong uh, respect for religion, but I also have a strong respect for the intellectual reading of religion. And it was Jung who pointed out to me, one of the first uh, people, that, that, that we've been, uh, there's been a mistake made a long while ago of uh, reading the Bible literally. And um, Jung couldn't abide the virgin birth of Jesus, for instance nor could he abide the physical resurrection. But he, he saw both of these events, are very important spiritual ideas that we need to contemplate. And, and he let and, patients, you know, continue their religious traditions. A couple of places he points people back to their religious tradition. He tells yes. them to go back to the, the there's yeah. the Muslim man and the Christians. So, I mean, yeah. he, he had respect and, and viewed the utility of this as something that enriched life and was helpful. Yes, you know? he, he told them to go back, but he didn't told, tell them to go back to the literal reading of it all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like if you were a Christian and you lapsed out because you couldn't read it literally, Jung would support you in that um, lapsing out um, and saying, look, but go back and 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 read it non-literally and it'd still be very it'll be more important for you than read literally so you know that's a big topic of its own but i don't want to waste our time talking only about religion but as you know jung wrote whole books and volumes on religion psychology of religion east well, and west um American Jungians will tell you that Jung is their religion, which is a strange way to use Jung. I mean, it's a lens to understand what it is, but I don't think being a Jungian analyst is a religion in the way that some people will say. No. No, in fact, Jung was uh, deadly opposed to this idea. that um, It's funny, you know, the people who loved Jung and the people who hated Jung had the same view about him, mm -hmm. which, was that, which was that he was starting a new religion. Mm -hmm. That's why people hated and loved him. Mm -hmm. But both were wrong because he kept saying, no, 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 this is not what I'm doing. I'm building a psychological bridge to religion. He uses that metaphor, Joel, mm -hmm. constantly. He, when about, he has the falling out with the priest, right, who's kind of trying to yes. update Christianity. Yeah, yeah, the priest in Britain called Father Victor White, mm -hmm. Um he followed Jung until he published Answer to Job, 1952. He writes uh, a letter to Martin Buber, too, where they disagree on religion. And, and there was a big then, falling out with Martin Buber in the Jewish tradition. Did the Pope ever respond? I knew that he wrote a letter to the Pope being like, oh, you're getting, you're making Catholicism better. Good job. This is what it's supposed to be like. And the Pope's like, of course, I'm making Catholicism right. I'm the Pope. Um, 
Well, that was Pope Pius the Twelfth. Did he respond uh, to him or anything? Who respond to who? Did the Pope write Jung back when Jung wrote that letter? No, no, he didn't. No, in fact, from that point on, Jung got banned by the Vatican um, <laughs> because. Um, but, well, Don't tell the, the Vatican, Pope he's doing a good job. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> he's the Vatican is very ambivalent about Jung because um, one one uh, thing that Jung did was was as you said he returned certain Catholics to Catholicism where they'd abandoned it because they'd become enlightened or intellectually got sick of it, or and the Pope actually sent Jung a blessing. In 19, I think 1950, it wasn't the Pope who delivered it personally, but he passed it on to the Catholic Archbishop of Zurich, whose name I can't remember, and Jung got the blessing from the Pope through the Archbishop of, of Zurich. Um, I hope they realized that Jung was never even a Catholic, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, why he's getting blessed by the Pope was a bit of a well, strange... They've, they've banned Jung pretty much every decade since he died. Absolutely. It's like too many too many uh, vocal clergy with podcasts and, 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 and quills yeah. will start to write books about Jung and then they will um, come in and yeah. say, uh, oh no, you can't, you can't do that. Um, That's they... right. I mean, there's a huge number of Catholic priests in the world, especially in North America. Um, who have taken Jung very seriously and written books about him. And I think the Vatican has felt very insecure about this. And um, as you say, about every decade, they come out with a new edict against Jung. It's hilarious, actually, because um, one, of, one of these things, anyone listening uh, can Google it. It's called um jesus christ the water of life um it's online and it's about 30 pages condemning Jung as a heretic as a gnostic uh as a blasphemer it's incredible considered that the same church blessed him not too long ago so i think they, the catholic funny. church does that to a lot of people you know meister eckhart is excommunicated and you know yes. sainted so there's in uh, fact um ex meister eckhart uh, the historians are now claiming was murdered by the Vatican army on his way to Rome. He, he'd left Paris. He'd been called up by the Vatican, but because Eckhart had said that God has to be reborn in the human heart, and that was dangerous mm -hmm. for the uh, Catholic Church because there was only one person that was close to that close to God, and that was his son. Jesus Christ. And so Eckhart, like all mystics, basically says the whole religious drama is about every person. It's not just about one person. And there's another person I should mention in this context, um, the German theologian, Eugene Drevermann, D-R-E-W-E-R-M-A-N-N, Eugene Drevermann, Eugene Drevermann, who's been... Um, um, banished by the Catholic Church. He's written 40 books on Catholicism and Jung, but only three of them have been translated into English. I've read them all, and they're just absolutely stunning. 
and I wish that somebody would translate the rest of these 40 books. But the Catholic Church was up in arms, and he got defrocked, and um, he can't practice as a Catholic priest anymore. That's how serious they take the challenge uh, from Jung. So religions are very aware of Jung, but mostly it's this hysterically negative point of view. One of the things that they all have in common is misreading Jung. If I can just give you a quick example, when Jung, of course, Jung was hugely influenced by Meister Eckhart, mm-hmm. um, the, the you know late um, late medieval mystic in the Rhineland, what we call Germany today, and um, Jung believes that uh, Eckhart is right about the idea that God needs to be reborn in the human soul. And so that that made the authorities in Rome uh, very uh, negative toward Jung. But when Jung uses the word self, this is where a lot of the complication arises. He's actually borrowing the Indian idea of the mm-hmm. self, the capital the S. Atman. The Atman, yeah. yeah. And in Vatican and everywhere else, have been reading this self as the ego. And so in this um, long 30-page diatribe against Jung, they refer to Jung as narcissistic, egotistic, and making some kind of demonic religion out of Mm. the ego. Because the idea that we've got something in us that's in addition to the ego is Mm -hmm. not a Western idea. And it's threatening to the ego, you know. To, to the hierarchies of that. It's threatening to the ego. But the, the idea of God being reborn in this capitalist self is, of course, standard in the East. Hinduism, um, Buddhism has that, of course, but a slightly different uh, direction because Buddhism doesn't believe in the self and it doesn't believe in God either. Well, if but there's not a self, you know, what is being reincarnated? Or if there's not, there's a lot yeah. of, or what if there's not a self, then how did the Bodhisattvas have a self to come? You know, different branches of Buddhism sort of become Hinduism or Jainism again, yeah. and then they reintroduce the idea so, while claiming to not have it. So what, in sense, what Jung is, is the East in the West, you know, and he had such a hard time. He was, he basically had Eastern insights, Eastern intuitions, but in the context of Western science. Mm-hmm. And Sonu Shamdasani, who's probably the leading scholar on Jung today, he lives in London, works mm-hmm. at the University of London, was basically saying that the scientists regard, disregarded Jung for being too religious and the theologians re- disregarded Jung for being too mystical. And I have people who call me and they're like, well, I want to come see you. And they schedule. And then they're like, well, I looked on your website and it says you do Jung. So I can't see you because I'm an atheist or I can't see you because I'm a Christian. So <laughs> you lose people. I was like, well, I, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm wondering what you're taking me using Jungian technique to mean here. But, That's right. Yeah. So the problem with Jung now in the universities, you don't find Jung in the universities at all anymore. Um, I think there was a stage back in the... 20s and 30s, where American universities were very interested in Jung. Mm-hmm. In fact, Freud and Jung used to go to Campbell America. in the Campbell. 70s. It was everywhere. Yeah. Campbell and wasn't so- too upfront about his influences, though. I mean, he doesn't point people back to where he got a lot of his ideas, which I think Campbell, is... Campbell? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I did I dislike that about Campbell. I mean, most of his ideas are completely borrowed from Jung. But um yeah, there is an American idea that America is a source country and uh, doesn't like always to acknowledge that many of its so-called original ideas came from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's a problem. That's part of the American complex is that it is original. And uh, original thinking is important to it. James, the rugged Herman, individualism, and and that we are the source of yeah. culture for the world. Yes, exactly. Which is true in part about the U.S. I'm not wishing to be too critical, but I think that Jung's influence on Campbell and Jung's influence on um, people like uh, Robert Bly and uh, um, Jordan Peterson—that's another topic—and mm-hmm. uh, uh, James Hillman is enormous. But uh, there's a certain reluctance to admit. Mircea Eliade is another one who yeah. was very reluctant to admit to the public uh, that he was hugely influenced by Jung. Um, I was wondering, you know, before we get off the topic of religion or, or take a break from it, um, if <laughs> there's an idea, you know, you're talking about Jung um, kind of independently discovering probably a lot like Eckhart you know, this Eastern idea. Um, Mm. Could you say a little bit about the relationship in a Jungian conception between the self, not the ego, but the the deep and aware self and and God or the reality of God? Because there is a relationship that is interesting, you know, in the Jungian Mm. tradition between those, but it is kind of hard to explain it. It is. Um, Jung's Jung's model is completely based on Hinduism which he was really influenced by. And in Hinduism, the self, as I said before, is called the Atman, A-T-M-A-N. And the Atman is regarded as the place in the human being, so to speak. (laughs) I mean, I'm using the word place metaphorically, but the place in the human being which is in touch with with Brahma, which is Mm -hmm. God. So... The relationship between Atman and Brahma is very similar in Christianity to relationship between God the Son and God the Father. So, But in Christianity, of course, the whole idea of the Atman, as it were, is projected onto the Jesus Christ figure, and only he has this special close relationship to God the Father. So this was never even conceived as a possibility in Hinduism because they always felt that the relationship between the human being and Brahma or God is closer than it gets in Christianity. So there are, of course, uh, Hindu Christians who respect and appreciate the Christian story <clears throat> and uh, but but Hinduism itself is really, I guess, is form. It's a form of mysticism. Um, so this is the thing that fascinates me: that the East doesn't need to develop mysticisms which can complement their orthodoxies, whereas in the West, in both, um, well, the three Abrahamic religions. 
Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam, in order to get that closeness or proximity between the human and the God, we have to develop mysticisms. So, you know, a Jewish Kabbalah, for instance, mm -hmm. the Christian mystical tradition and the Islamic tradition of Sufism mm -hmm. develop because the, the need to compensate the orthodox traditions which tend to place the human and the God far apart. But um, in both Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, the two major Eastern religions, um, there is no need to complement the orthodoxies because they're already mysticisms. Well, the path is there, but, you know, if you're dealing with Islam or Christianity, <laughs> or, or you need to build the path to have the direct experience to God because the tradition is there to keep it away from you, to give you a hierarchy and a structure and a container. Mm. And if you hang out there long enough, maybe you get bored with the container and you want to crack that open and, and leave the ego. And so then oh, yes. you have to have, uh, you know, mm. a mystical uh, a pathway yes. that out of the literal uh, interpretation. That's exactly right. But in Catholicism has made an interesting breakthrough uh, on this. And, and particularly from the theologian Karl Rahner, R-A-H-N-E-R, the German Catholic theologian who was very influential in the Vatican II Council in the 1960s. And Vatican um, II Council plus Karl Rahner said that the future Christian must be a mystical person mm -hmm. or won't be at all. So Catholicism almost seemingly in a turn of about, you know, an about face, has this idea that it itself should become more mystical. That's what it said mm -hmm. in the Vatican II Council in the early 60s. But, of course, what happened was that most bishops, archbishops, and cardinals didn't agree with this radical finding of Vatican II Council, so they kind of protested against it. So we, we find in the Catholic Church today very few priests who actually believe in this mystical direction. They, they want to restore the old hierarchy. They want to restore power of the clergy because, of course, if individuals have a mystical connection to God, then really the clergy and its hierarchy is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Because well, you if you don't make room for that, the priests leave. You know, they leave the tradition when you're not allowing uh, that, yes. that mystical pathway to exist simultaneously so, with the people who need the literalism and the people who need the. So that, that's right. Anymore. So that's why the Catholic Church is in a bit of a chaotic state at the moment, because in the 60s, the Vatican II Council was said to be a movement of the Holy Spirit. And in one of the encyclicals, um, called the Word of God, um, Verbum Dei, Deo, Deo Verbum. Uh, it actually says that we want to change Catholicism to being a religion about God to a religion of God. So they wanted to bring this. They could see that, that the world, especially the Western world and educated people, no longer wanted this kind of second-hand religion. Mm -hmm. They wanted the first-hand experience. And that, of course, is what Jung was saying all along. 
So Catholicism said that, and then it backtracked fiercely with a huge backlash um, from conservative bishops. Well, the people who are kind of the most reactionary Catholics, a lot of the time that memorize all the rules and can calculate exactly how much time you spend in purgatory for each crime and sin and all that, they're Mm. the converts. But the Mm. communities that have been Catholic for a long time, they tend to Mm. develop that transcendental pathway through the saints a lot of the time. And then you get the saints functioning similar to the way that in a you know, in Hinduism, the, the different gods function as there is one God, but this is a manifestation of one need for God. You know, mm. Ganesha, the elephant is elephants are construction equipment. It will remove the obstacle for you. And you mm. see, you know, different cultural groups have festivals. The saints start to function that way when you spend time in that Absolutely. world. The saints do act as intermediaries, I think is the word that we're looking for here. And Mary, uh, Virgin Mary, mother of God, Mother of Jesus is, of course, in Catholicism, uh, as seen as a mediary, um, a, a way, if you like. I mean, in the beginning, Christianity was called the way, capital W, and um, it lost that as hierarchy, dogma, and doctrine sort of took over, and it became, um, as you said before, virtually became a way to keep people from God, you know, mm-hmm. to protect to protect people from a, a potentially disorienting direct experience with God. Um, and that's what Jung says in his book, Psychology and Religion, that the West partly feared direct contact with the source of our being because it thought it might be t- utterly disorienting and mm-hmm. even dismembering. Uh, <clears throat> even dismembering of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, Edinger has that great map and um, ego and archetype. Where you know, are you familiar with the diagram where he says like this is yeah. the functioning church and the archetypes are being held by the container, but then when it breaks down, everyone is having a direct experience, but they're not ready for it, and mm-hmm. it starts to look like psychosis if you're not ready for it. And you look at political developments like QAnon or these things where. People are engaging, you know, that aren't quite ready with this archetypal stuff, and it's there's a rootlessness. There's no container. There's no hierarchy. There's no, they're not ready, yes. and you know, a lot of American, certain kinds of American political and and religious belief are starting to look just a lot like schizophrenia, you know, in the broad strokes mm. of how they function. No, that's right, and that's why Jung was in two minds about all this, you know. One part of him admired the Christian churches for presenting what he called a bulwark against direct experience. He liked that idea because it protected people. I mean, the American writer Annie Dillard has written extensively about this. Do you know Annie Dillard? I'm not familiar. No, she's uh, written a number of books. And one of her books, she says, (laughs) uh, people in churches... <clears throat> who ask the Holy Spirit to come down upon them and bless them, have no idea what the, what they're asking for. And she says they should wear safety helmets on their heads in case what they're asking for actually does happen. And um, they should go in with those bicycle helmets, uh, hard hats. And um, she's a, a mystical writer in the United States, and I love her work very much. Um uh, teaching a Stone to Talk is one of her books. Mm. Yeah, I have and, heard that title. Yeah. And um, 
another book is called uh, I think it's called um, Holy Holy Ground, Holy mm -hmm. the Ground, something like that. And um, she obviously um, is on the same page here as Jung. And Jung says that you know that, that Christianity is dying because people aren't having first-hand experiences of their of the source of their being and that the church is too much of a bulwark and a, a defensive wall against <clears throat> direct experience. <clears throat> but as, as you said, people who want direct experience can end up, and do end up schizophrenic because we're not used to it, you see. We're not used to We're not, we don't have the, mm, the values. The, the ego is that organizing principle of the psyche. No. When you get rid of it entirely, yes. there is no yeah. organizing principle. You know, something like Newman talking about centroversion and the process that when mm. when animals are evolving, you know, into humans, there are all these instinctual reactions and there get to be so many. There, it, yeah. there needs to be a central principle that can choose between them. And when you just completely yes. just destroy that, um, you're you're not functioning. So Jung used to say that the West is ahead of the East with technology and science, but the East is way ahead of the West in terms of religion, mm -hmm. mysticism, and and the numinous, uh, you know, the, the experience of the divine. And I think that in the East, in India in particular, and also, of course, Tibet, um, China's in a different position because it's been officially atheist Mm -hmm. since Mao Zedong, although I can see a reaction happening quite soon in China as people are, uh, are not going to be happy with this well, atheism. But when you go to China and you, you ask them what their religion is, they're like, well, we're atheists and then we're going to burn all of this paper money so that our ancestral spirit can have it in the afterlife during the funeral. And then we're going to, and you're like, wait a minute, so you do, no, 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 we're atheists, we're communists, we're atheists. And they'll continue to tell you about and I mean, I and the Americans do the same thing when you when you turn yeah. mythology into something that is scary and of the past, you're blind to mm. how it is functioning in the present. Mm. And then it is unconscious. And but, it can uh, you. There, there are a lot of Chinese here in Australia where I live. In fact, in my city, Melbourne, um, there, I looked it up recently. There are four hundred and eighty five thousand Chinese in my city. So it's just under a half a million Chinese. Mm in my city alone. The reason they're here is because the standard of living here is very high. In fact, the standard of living in Australia, if you don't mind me saying, is higher than America. Sure. Uh, because we have free public health. You know, we you can go and see the doctor and it all is free. <clears throat> we don't have that fiasco that you had of, about Obamacare and things like that. We have a system which is quite similar to Sweden. Health services sure. are free, and there's lots of doctors and lots of nurses, and and of course, uh, food here is relatively cheap compared to China, where it's expensive. So mm -hmm. a lot of Chinese are coming here, but I've met several Chinese. I had quite a few Chinese students when I taught at the university, and yes, I'd ask them, do they have a religion? And the first answer was always no. Um, because they're supposed to be atheists. But after you talk to them a bit, they say they pray to the deities and, mm -hmm. and that they light incense and candles. And 
and, and have intermediaries that they worship. So it's a kind of a schizophrenic culture, really. Or perhaps that's a bit harsh. Um, perhaps well, it's the same say, as America. You turn everything into a religion and then you don't see religion anymore. And so people aren't aware that their politics have become that or, you mm. know, that we don't. Even atheism is like a religion in the United States. It when is. someone becomes an atheist, they have to be enlightened and they're superior and they're very Freudian and intellectual. And, and it's like yeah. your whole life is about this lack of belief in something that is itself That's a religion right. you are creating. It's a religion in its particularly in its dogmatism and the way it can you know basically shapes your whole life. But I've I've found with the, the Chinese that it's almost like, to use Jungian terms, the persona versus the soul. You know, the persona of the Chinese is atheist, but the soul is not atheist mm -hmm. and never has been. And so this suggests that China is a very dangerous country because if the persona and the soul are out of whack and they don't actually relate to each other, then the potential for splitting of the personality a schizophrenia or dissociation is always there. That's ha that's happened to my sister. Um, she, uh, like me, was brought up very religious. You know, I had a totally full-on religious upbringing, and so did my sister. She rejected it intellectually as she became more educated. She read existentialism and Freud and Nietzsche. And uh, she got me reading existentialism when I was about 17, which was probably too young to understand existentialism. But after a while, she clung to this atheist idea and became progressively schizophrenic. Um, and I did speak to her about it, and she thought I was part of the devil, you know, because she uh -huh. developed paranoia. But my family uh, is Irish. And the Irish are inherently religious. You know, no two ways about it. Um, if you say you're atheist in I Ireland, you're basically lying. You're trying to be an atheist, but your soul is still religious. So with my sister, she said she was atheist, but actually she, she was of the same psyche that I had. And I can't get rid of religion. I can, I've tried to, but I can't, and I don't want to anymore. Because well, I don't know that anyone can. It's the, are you honest about it and how it is functioning in your life? Are you conscious of that? I mean, going back to China, you know, the persona can turn on a dime, but the soul can't. You know, mm -hmm. you have this modernist Marxist cultural project where you come in and say, okay, everybody's atheist now. This is what you believe, and this is this new way of life. You can do that in 50 years, but you can't get rid of the history yeah. And the the body like the the that is yeah. still this felt rootedness thousands that, of years thousands yeah. of years of ancestor Taoism. worship and families ancestor and... worship and and so Buddhism as well apparently Richard Wilhelm uh, or Richard Bill Wilhelm as we say in English wrote a book in the forties called the Soul of China but of course he wrote it before Mao Zedong. And uh, a friend of mine is sending me this book. It's in the mail now. I can't wait to read it because I think the soul of China is going to come up again. Mm -hmm. And when that comes up again, we're going to get a very different China to the one we see today um, with Xi Jinping as the mm -hmm. presiding oligarch over the whole thing of 1.6 billion people, mm -hmm. which makes America look small in terms of the population.
And as for my country, you know, we have fewer people than you have in California. And so we're sitting at the foot of China. There's um, sheep farms in Australia that are the size of Alabama <laughs> with very few people on them. Well, America, when I lived in America, they called Australia British Texans. <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. A, we have wide horizons with nothing in them. You know, it's massive, mm -hmm. massive continent. It's the same size as America, Australia, yeah. geographically, without Alaska. But um, we only have uh, 24 million people mm -hmm. in this massive country. And so we are, I think, quite afraid of China because it's in an aggressive expansionist mood at the moment. It's clearly already moved on Hong Kong, taken it back. And it's about to, of course, despite Nancy Pelosi's visits, mm -hmm. um, take, take uh, Taiwan back. Uh, that's expressed policy of current mm -hmm. Chinese uh, political um, uh, strategy. And, of course, they will probably come closer. They took over South Vietnam. And, of course, as you well know, America fought that war and lost it. And Australia supported America fighting against the communists from the north. Well, and there's a lot of building projects and things in Africa, you know, that where they're yes. building hospitals, roads, bridges for mental rights. And there was exactly. a funny Twitter exchange a couple months ago where somebody was like, the Chinese mm -hmm. are, you know, the Africans want the Chinese to come. They don't want the Americans and the British. And the saying is, when the Chinese come, we get a hospital. When the Americans and the British come, we get a lecture. And a, and a British and an American person responded on the thing, and they said, "Well, no, you have to understand, there's no such thing as a free lunch." And communist, <laughs> and then an African said, and "There goes the lecture." <laughs> that is so funny. That is so true. Australians are like Americans. You know, mm. we 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 happily give out lectures to countries. You know, like Africa, or African. I think well, you give out a little bit more healthcare than the states, so. <laughs> And the British, too, give them lectures. But America, uh, China wants to build hospitals and schools. Mm -hmm. Not only Africa, but this is all the Pacific Islands, like mm -hmm. Samoa, um, Fiji, all these countries in the Pacific. China want, wants them as strategic basis for their expansionist policy. This expansionist policy is, for some reason, called the Belt and Road. Yeah. the Belt and Road policy. And, of course, naturally, America is shaking in its boots it's because the of, the of, the, of the world order and the, and our yeah, our mythology is order. under threat. That no the one whole can, world order is under threat. Um, no one can China. do anything without us approving of it. And and that myth is ending. And we do, Americans resist making a new myth, you know? Yes, we, the, the American myth is it's basically that it rules the world. That, you know that it, it's the policeman of the of the world, and China's in the process of challenging that, and um, already has outmaneuvered with America in terms of its gross national product and its economic development. So, mm -hmm. Australia, as one of a very close allies of America, um, is shaking because we're wondering. We're wondering if we've made allies with the wrong country. We, we made mm. allies with America after the Second World War. America saved Australia from the mm. Japanese, just as it saved Europe from Hitler. Um, as well, America did a massive amount of good work in the Second World War. 
but its Pacific theatre was focused on helping Australia save mm-hmm. save uh, our country, and they did a marvelous job. But but now uh, we're wondering whether we need a better alliance with China. So we too feel totally confused about the world order. Uh, but we're talking politics now. Uh, yeah. uh, the religious thing is bubbling away under the surface. You know, yeah. I mean, always. Always. Yeah, always, and it's hard to know what the answer will be about China on the brink of some kind of religious breakthrough. I used to teach at the Jung Institute in Zurich um, for quite a few years, actually 10 years, and most of my students were Asians, um, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Thailand, uh, uh, Taiwan, also Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Koreans were there in huge numbers. And I would think to myself, you know, what's going on in Asia? Why are they so hungry for Jung? Mm. And uh, the biggest pop band in the world is called BTS, mm-hmm. and their work is all based on Jung. Um, mm. they've, re- they've released a series of albums based on the book by Murray Stein called The Map of the Soul. Mm-hmm. They released released an album called The Persona and then something called Archetypes and something about soul, and that's the biggest selling band in the world. So there's some very extraordinary things going on in Asia at the moment. And, of course, in Russia there are extraordinary things too. The, the Russian Orthodox Church has re-bonded with the Russian government <coughs> Um so there's no, there's no connection, disconnect anymore between the Russian church and the Russian state. Well, So, you know, this is an extraordinary thing, um, which is unprecedented. We used to think of Russia as a secular country mm. but, and a communist, of course, based on Marx. But now I think the Marxist stuff's flying away quickly. And uh, there's this sort of fundamentalist fusion between religion and the state. And Russia is a very dangerous country, of course, um, always has been, and probably always will be. So the whole world order is shifting under our feet. Well, it's a dangerous world. I mean, I think the bigger through line in our conversation has been the, the benefits and the risks of direct experience. You know, yes. And I know that you have said that you're not super comfortable talking about clinical realities or therapy, but at the same time, I mean, I, I don't know why you feel like you know more about therapy than probably most clinicians, at least the ones that send resumes to me. Um, and like the... Now, 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 now. Be, well, be polite. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. And I'm not saying that they're not good clinicians. It's that we don't teach the history of the profession. I mean, we no. they, you, you, cognitive behavioral therapy came in in the 80s and and it's just the ego is all there is. Here's some ego management strategies, you know, clap mm-hmm. your hands and tell the anxiety to stop. Yeah. And I mean, what I notice too is like the, the institutes, the Jungian institutes in the 80s become incredibly analytical. I mean, they're analyzing yes. trauma, but they're not treating it. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who has a dissociative disorder, you're telling them about the myth of Pericles, you know, but you're not doing any kind of direct experience. There's this distance. And then in those out of those institutes, a lot of people, a lot of Jungian analysts leave, um, like Arnold Mendel, and he does process therapy. And 
Sidra and Hal Stone that do voice dialogue. And and the thing that those have in common is that they're directly experiential. One, they're not analytical styles. They're based on Jung's map. But then also they're somatic. They're using the body, you know. You, can you say anything about that? Or do you know anything about that, that point with the institutes? Well, I think you're right. And I think there's been a book recently written about this, which I mentioned before, Peter Kingsley. Catafalque. Catafalque is, is uh, something to do with the ceremonies uh, uh, in funerals. Um, it, the book subtitle of the book is C.G. Jung and the End of Humanity, mm -hmm. uh, which is a rather dramatic-sounding title. Um, but I think that the Jungian project is in danger of if not already, has lost its soul, actually. There's a lot of infighting in the institutes. I don't know yeah. the politics behind those, but there's like three competing ones now where people left yeah. and made their own. And I mean, it... well, in London, which I'm very familiar with because I'm often in London, there are five competing Jungian institutes. It's already a small piece of clinicians are Jungian. I mean, to be cutting those into fractions seems like a. Freud. Freud had a wonderful phrase for this. He called it the narcissism of minor differences. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm working for next week, I'm actually working for one of the London institutes, and they're sort of not friendly with the other Jungian institutes. So, so it's what are just, the disagreements? Uh, I mean, what, why do they fight? These fighting, this fighting indicates the field is fragmented, to say the least. And being fragmented, how can it? function properly so i think you're right and uh, a lot of people that get disillusioned with um, jungian uh, clinical training for instance i was giving a series of lectures last month in october 2022 and there was a fellow on came on who was studying in, at the jung institute in zurich and i was giving contextual lectures about where jung had come from what are the major influences on his thinking from Germany and, of course, Switzerland and France, etc.? And he said at the end that they never get taught that at mm -hmm. the Jung Institute. Um, they just get the kind of these are the archetypes, this is the shadow, this is mm -hmm. the ego. They just get that model uh, taught to them, but they don't get the whole intellectual development of the Well, it's why they a lot of Jungian clinicians don't know how to apply it. They know how to talk about it. But, I mean, it's a map, but you need a technique. Um, and I, I think it, you just get stuck in analysis forever, and you never directly encounter any of these things. Or if you do, it's on accident, you know. Um, I mean, one maybe good jumping off point into James Hillman in the red book is talking about direct experience. Um, yeah. If, I mean, if anyone isn't familiar, who's listening, you know, James Hillman is the first, what non-provisional director of the Institute. Um, yeah. And he, you know, by all accounts, he's a very good analyst and a, a, a brilliant mind, but never really deals with a lot of things going on. You know, maybe the father wound that brings a ton of male Jungians into the Jungian lens. Um, yeah. he, you know, has a falling out with the Institute, develops archetypal theology or ar archetypal, uh, what do you call it? Ar archetypal psychology, which yeah. I think no one really ever figured out how to 
practice it, including Hillman. You know, <laughs> he came up with something that he could talk about, but he couldn't he even he did not know how to do it because, I mean, he took the idea of the self and the ego away. And I mean, everything that I can yeah. tell about archetypal psychology is that you basically push people into a pagan yeah. religious experience with no intellect yeah, and no actually. sense of self. And the symbol becomes reality. And I mean, yeah. I, I, could, I don't know what that would do, but it doesn't sound helpful. And I never really found any accounts of Hillman even doing that but, as an animal. But you, you, do you know that I worked with Hillman for three years? Yeah, so that was yeah. why we wanted to get your perspective. What I'd heard you say before, and correct me where I'm wrong here, is that you know your institute had sent you to work with Hillman, and then Hillman decided that you didn't know as much as he did, and so that yeah. you couldn't guest host the radio show, but he wanted to analyze you, which seems kind of uh, arrogant there. I mean, I, I mean, people who don't have the vocabulary or the learning that I have, I'm not bored by. They're still interesting conversations. I mean, or yes, at least, yeah. I mean, that seems like strange. So then he said that well, you should become his patient, basically. Yes. Don't forget, though, the age difference. I worked, I started working with Hillman when I was 28. Mm. Yeah, I'm now 70. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when I was 28, Hillman was, I think, 58. So uh, there were 30 years difference. So he was a good generation or more older than me. And my institution, which was funded by New York, um, Harkness Foundation in New York City, uh, wanted me to have conversations with Hillman that might might end up in books published about Post so-called post-Jungian psychology, mm -hmm. and um, but Hillman is such a, or was such a controversial figure. You know, he'd been, as you said, he'd been booted out of Zurich because he was too radical. Well, he also <laughs> slept with a patient, and then he slept somebody... with a patient who happened to be <clears throat> the wife of a clergyman. Yeah, um, in in Switzerland. It scandalized everybody. Um, his his uh, analyst, C.A. Meyer, I mean, he was kind of in a fight with his mentor, too, which was maybe yeah. why he was acting out like that. Did you know C.A. Meyer or anything about him? No, he I seemed didn't know. to not be a popular person. when you No, I didn't know C.A. Meyer. I knew, knew Marie-Louise von Franz, mm -hmm. and I met uh, Edward Edinger, and I met Robert Johnson and June Singer, and uh, all these sorts of people. Thomas Those Moore. ones are probably more fun to meet. <laughs> Meyer yeah, Thomas like Moore, it. I think, was one of the best of the lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Tom Moore, very grounded fellow, an excellent man. Mm -hmm. um, until His writing reminds me of James Hollis. They seem similar. In yes. The... James Hollis is also a good friend of mine. Um, used to live in Texas. I think he lives in Washington, D.C. now. Yeah, beautiful um, writer. Yeah, Thomas Moore used to live close to me in Texas, and then he moved up to, I think, in the Boston, Cambridge area. And um, But um, where, where were we? We were saying... We were talking about um, just Hillman being your mentor, oh, and that he, you know, he was kind yes, of a yes. talented analyst who wanted to develop something that wasn't Jungian yeah. that was Hillmanian, but I don't think he ever found the words for no. it. No, you're exactly right. I don't know how you know so much about this stuff because you're a young man. How do you know so much? I've just read everything. I mean, I, I think the profession is, you should know the history of the profession. And then that means that you, you read the papers these people publish and you get a sense of their psychology and, and you get a I sense mean, of the 
things going on in the institutes. You know as much as I do, so I should be interviewing you. Um, but you know, you're half my age, and um, but look, frankly, you're absolutely right. Everything you say is spot on, and that is that Hillman wanted to go beyond Jung, and he bragged about it in a fashion which I thought was a bit offensive. Actually, Jung was a genius. You know, you, you read and, things like uh, the Souls Code, and he's talking about his discovery but not able to articulate what it is you know mm. it's a trope or a truism and he he's not ever he never was really able to um i think separate from jung in a mature way you know you have the mm. this kind of father wound that brings i mean and hillman really i wanted to lead into a larger question which is I mean, this maybe sounds a little controversial, but I worry for myself. I mean, do you think that male Jungians go nuts at the end of their life? Do all, do all of them do that? Because there seem to be a lot of people who, you know, they have an over-identified anima, you know, they have yeah. heightened intuitive feelings since and probably yeah. some pain and they're attracted to the psychology and then they get in it yeah. and they start to get to the end of their career and then they're angry like well i didn't get to save the world i did everything right i mapped all this stuff out i taught forever but the world is still a mess why am i not the messiah yeah. and and you see them i mean helen was true. yelling on on right wing talk radio at the end of his life about how yeah. we'd been doing therapy for 40 years and the world wasn't better so what was the point and it was like these problems well, have gone on since the bronze age you're not going to fix them but that isn't the reason that we try. Yeah, I think you're right. You you know too much. I, I you, you know too much. I mean, I I don't even need to tell you. <laughs> well, but you, I think... you were there. I mean, I'm I'm listening to the recordings of this, you know, yeah. and and some torrent that I downloaded in college, like a big computer file of all these Jungian talks and appearances, you know. But I I, I don't. Um... I th I think a lot of Jungian men do go a bit or right at the end of their careers um they've developed a close as you say an identified anima they've often got strong intuition and feeling their relationship with reality is often rather tenuous yeah um because they've been which focused. makes them effective when they're young and it makes them yeah errors when they're dying them, essentially like toward the end of his life hillman i think had a deep father wound a deep father wound. That's why he joined up with Robert Bly, because mm -hmm. Robert Bly trades on the father wound. And so did Moore. I mean, all of those guys. I mean, Moore was a little nicer than Bly, but he he still had this tendency to be evangelical about the shadow. You mean Robert Moore? You're Robert Moore. Yeah, I thought you might talk about Tom Moore. Tom oh, no, Moore's no. different. Ro Robert Moore would, would talk about the shadow like he was an evangelical pastor sometimes. And you know that poor Robert Moore's life ended very tragically. Well, it's funny because I didn't know that when I was reading him, but he w it was scaring me because he's so gentle yeah. and kind. And then he would yeah. start talking about, no, but the shadow is 100% evil and black. And if you take a step in there, it will eat you alive and you can never integrate it. And it was like, yeah. this is anti-Jungian. There's something in you that is very dark and very yeah. scary. And then yeah. I was reading more about him and come to find out. I mean, there were medical things going on too, but you know, he does essentially shoot himself and his wife, you know, at the end of his life. As yeah, it, it, it ended. his life ended tragically in a suicide murder. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what does that say about Jungian psychology? You know, it mm -hmm. says how dangerous it is. Um, Robert Moore, I, I, I loved his work, but like you, I sensed there was something unresolved in it.
Mm-hmm. Uh, his stuff on the shadow wasn't good. Um, no. It was like the satanic panic. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was wild. I mean, just so reactionary and against yeah. his against his whole I persona. Was, I was shocked for years when I found that he'd shot himself in the head um, after shooting his wife. Yeah. And um, it, it just left me speechless. Um, these people are supposed to be the guardians of our soul. But if there's things in us that we don't ever directly experience, you know, that we just describe, you know, that comes out. And I think that's why psychology is changing. And I I think that, that, I mean, that's kind of the through line of this conversation. You can do it in religion, politics, whatever. But, um, Mm. you know, you you feel when you read Hillman that something's wrong, you know, that. Yeah. And you feel when you read more that something's wrong. You read James Hollis and you feel like that person is a lot um better actualized and okay you know i don't I get feel that james hollis is quite integrated yeah he's there's nothing in there that is a red flag no but there were red flags in robert moore and red flags in hillman and they start and I, men's rights movements you know all of those guys go kind of right wing and and start these men's right movements at the end of their career i don't know if you've read my essays on hillman have you or not I read um, the unmaking of a psychologist, and then I read all the people who were jumping on to to critique that with their responses. Well, I published. I, I used a... to pay for the Wiley Library, and I got so sick of dealing with the Wiley Library. I would they would send me my login information six months later, and I would be like, "Well, can I have six months free or refunded?" No, you can't, and that's just finally so so over it. Well, I can send anyone who's listening who wants them. I can send them to you for free. You know, I have the PDF files mm-hmm. with. I basically said in those essays, which, by the way, I published in Britain, not in America, because Mm -hmm. I thought there were too many fans of Hillman in America who would object to what I had to say. But I was so many Americans first experience with Jung, you know, that was just the way they knew of it. But the father wound is huge in Hillman and he he enacted it with Jung. You know, he Mm -hmm. tried to basically say that. He'd gone beyond Jung. He's better than Jung. Um, But I think you nailed it earlier when you said that in his practice, Hillman was still Jungian. I I once asked him at the end of a session, I said, Jim, everything that we've done is so Jungian. I'm waiting for the Hillman part. And he just looked at me and he said, I haven't yet developed a practice in line with my theory so that there was a big gap between his practice and his theory. You read him and he's telling everyone how post-Jungian he is, but being in analysis with him as I was, he was unbelievably orthodox Jungian. I couldn't mm-hmm. even I couldn't even tell one bit of the analysis that wasn't purely Jungian. I heard him yelling about how Jungianism resolves, you know, removes the symbol by analyzing it and you have to go into the symbol. And I heard him yelling about archetypal psychology. I never heard a case study of him practicing it that I could find anywhere. No, he didn't. He doesn't have even one case study in all of his 24 books, which tells you something, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, in Jung's, Jung's work is full of case studies. Often well, he, he was you're, when you start trying to give other people the medicine you need, you know, you're, you're saying that other people need to have a direct experience. Yeah. It's one that you haven't had. And I think he wanted yeah. 
he wanted some kind of ego dissolving spiritual transcendental moment that he never he he never was able to find or go into. Um, he did he did toward the end was aware of of what he was missing. In the fact, red book you, maybe was that experience for him. Yes, yes, very good point. The red book, but also there's a book called Archetypal Process. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, yeah, I, that's one that is on my eBay alerts, but it's very expensive. So yeah, <laughs> just like your Rutledge books, if somebody sells one used and they don't know what it's worth, I'll buy it, but I don't have the money so right now. It's called Archetypal Process. It was edited by David Ray Griffin. Mm -hmm. The title of the subtitle of Archetypal Process is Jung, um, Whitehead, and Hillman. And Hillman writes some fascinating stuff in there. And he admits that his work miss is missing a whole dimension, mm -hmm. which is the metaphysical, the spiritual dimension. Mm -hmm. Just he was longing for so much that he almost was trying to like resurrect paganism or something, you know. Exactly. He was trying to resurrect paganism. He hated Christianity, partly because he was Jewish, mm -hmm. but he also hated Judaism. Mm-hmm. So, he did not like monotheism. He wanted the no, divine to be broken up into. He didn't like any form of monotheism, whether his own Judaism or Christianity. And he didn't like Islam either. So he wanted us to go back to the Greek pantheon, mm -hmm. um, the polytheism of the Greeks. I think but, he would have gone even farther back. He wanted us to go back to the mother cult, you know, to, to the, the Venus uh, figurines of the of the stone age i don't you know if you can hear the torrential rain pounding on my roof here i'm not able to um yeah <laughs> that's good so anyway i think um <clears throat> when i was studying with hillman and being analyzed by him as a fellow called ralph maud came down from alberta canada and he asked hillman a question which i thought was completely spot on he said how come your work is asking us to go back to the religion of the ancient Greeks before Christianity? You're asking us to basically worship people like Athena and, and Artemis and Aphrodite. Yeah, they're all, of course, the female goddesses. Um, he wasn't terribly interested in the male gods, except for Hermes, I think. Yeah, I really do think he wanted to go back to the, the like yeah. the Venus of Villendorf, you know, and crawl into a yeah. cave and, of the Great Mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, this guy from Alberta said, why should we go back to the Greek religion when even the Greeks got rid of their own polytheism in favor of Christianity? Because the Greeks were were one of the first cultures of the world to convert to Christianity. And, and, and he says to Hillman, why did the Greeks lose faith and belief in their own religions, their own many polytheisms? And Hillman couldn't answer it. So there was a, you know, he was just silent. It's a great question. And that didn't happen often with Hillman when he was asked a no, question. He, he basically had nothing to say. And, um, I suppose the, the visitor from Canada basically thought to himself, "Touche, mm. you know, I, 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 you know, uh, checkmate." Have you um have you read the Lament for the Dead? The uh, Hillman and the Sanu Samshadani yes. both wrote. 
You have read I it. reviewed that for a, for a British journal. Oh, yes. I didn't know that you had written a review of it. I have to look that up. I, I was yeah. impressed. I mean, I, I'm not wild. I mean, it seemed to be, and especially in the beginning, some of the best writing that Hillman did. It's thoughtful yes. and um, there's yes. a depth to it. Uh, I, I liked it. Yeah, me too. I liked it as well. And uh, I like anything that Sonu Shamdasani does. Um, I think he's a very balanced. One of the good things about Sonu Shamdasani is that he's he, he's a scholar. He's not a clinician. Mm-hmm. He's an historian of Jung's ideas. Mm-hmm. And he's he knows the whole context in which it all occurs. Mm-hmm. And naturally, he's, he's, of course, the editor of the Red Book as well. Yeah. So I, he, I mean, he kind of is the reason it was published, too. I mean, he I mean, you have Richard Knoll is attacking Jung. So maybe that motivates the family to want to defend him. But I mean, my understanding was Sonu basically got these copies of where Jung had mailed the Red Book to the mm-hmm. publisher, but it was not a complete draft and yes. said, unless you let me publish the big one, I'm going to publish the imperfect imper- one. And then the family gave him yeah. permission. Uh, that's right. But actually, coming back to the Red Book, I think what we can see there is that direct experience of the the god or the gods or the noumena or whatever you want to call it, I don't really care. I'm not attached to a particular language, um, is very disruptive. Um, I mean, Jung's Red Book is basically an analysis of his own psychosis. Yeah. I yeah. think he could not find an analyst for him, and he tried oh. to basically become that. No, he tried to analyze himself through his own psychosis. And I think it's rather coy and shy of the Jungians to constantly refer to this phase of his life as his creative encounter with the unconscious. You know, anyone with half an inkling about psychiatry can see that Jung was struggling with a full-blown mm-hmm. psychosis. And even there's a debate about how much of it was a loss of control and how much was active imagination and you know what yeah. mindset is he in when he's doing this? Because he was seeing I patients. Know. I mean he was punching the clock. He's yeah. feeling the meat off his soul to talk directly to God and then yeah, clocking out and going to the don't hospital. forget what I said to you about China. I think Jung was a good example of China. His persona was still intact. He was still acting as a, a, a respect, respectable psychiatrist with his patients, but within himself, he was a seething cauldron of mm-hmm. psychotic activity, like he's a volcano that had exploded. And that's he knew why it. He, he wanted to make it conscious and go all the way yeah. to the bottom. Yeah, he did, and he went all the way to the bottom. He He does say in some of his essays that, the psyche is like a volcano, which can which can blow its top at any mm. moment. Well, of course, and it's explained. in all of us. It's in all of us, whether or not we pretend that it isn't there, or wish it away, or eat, try and cling to the yeah, ego. Yeah, he and that, is under... that um, partly. It's a father wound. Talk about coming back to the father wound. I mean, Jung was terribly wounded by his father. You know, mm. because Jung wanted to help his father understand the interior dimension of Christianity, but his father wasn't interested in any interior dimension. Mm-hmm. He basically thought his son was mad. And then and, when... and he had lost his own faith, the, his father yeah. had. So he was refusing the pathway that was being offered to him to yes. try and reconcile well, some of his persona. And I he, think he... it's a classic case of healing the Oedipal complex. You know, Jung had out 
done his father, but he wanted he didn't want to destroy his father like Oedipus did. Uh, he wanted to remake his father. He wanted mm -hmm. to redeem his father. And, of course, then the whole thing gets acted out with Freud. Freud was... Well, and Meyer, and then Meyer through Hillman. You know, and then it's to a certain extent you. I would be fascinated to know how much a father came came, a father complex came up and what Hillman was telling you about your analysis. Yeah, you know? well, my uh, it won't surprise you to learn that my analysis was about my father wound. Yeah, we give and other we, people the medicine that we need, you know, <laughs> but don't want to take. <laughs> I mean, I have had a very big father wound, and I, t I t fronted up to Hillman one day. I just said, guess what, Jim? I said, what's happening? I said, my father has decided to come over here and meet you and and talk with me about my analysis. And Hillman said, <laughs> oh, 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 this is getting close. He wasn't to so life. brave anymore. <laughs> <laughs> my father just, you know, this is where synchronicity hits the, the road, you know, the rubber hits the road. I was mm -hmm. working on my father complex and my father felt it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that I was in America and he was 12,000 miles away in Australia. He felt it in the, the psyche. He knows no. It could be through a small gap of communication and inflection yes. of tone. Yes. I mean, so much of and, what we're aware of is not what we're aware of. So coming back to Jung, um, his break, he split with Freud, really totally fragmented him. And a psychosis resulted, with which Jungians pretend to domesticate at some point. Of well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, is you don't like the Red Book, whereas I do, most Jungians do. I agree with you that most people, most they sanitize it and they act like, oh, he made this beautiful work of art. Isn't his diary mm. cool? No, Doesn't it look alchemical? That. And it was like, no, this is a deep and profound suffering that is yeah. partially mm. reconciled because it is an mm. unreconcilable pain mm. you know that he's going into and pain, you, huge pain I'm, but, I'm but you think that it hits him trying to be too prophetic or you, you don't like the, the presentation of the of the tone in the book the persona i don't the like author. the tone of the book i was asked to write on it by murray stein in zurich and i did but i told murray murray i don't like the red book i think it's psychotic I think that that the, the the prophetic tone is too strong. I find it too strident. You know, chapters called "Things Which Are to Come" or "Things Which Have Yet to Come," or Seven Sermons I, to the Dead." You know, it's yeah. it's it's written in the tone of like the Bible almost. The well, it, 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 it it's like people scraping their fingernails down a blackboard or something. It it just got on my nerves and. Well, if he was coming down the mountain with it to bring it to the masses and starting a cult and treating himself like the prophet and, and you know, yeah, making yeah. Jordan Peterson type YouTube videos, I think that would be yeah. a problem. But it was something he chewed on privately, which, you know, I feel like I chew on things privately through art and writing and it, it doesn't I, look, look yeah, that I good. Know. You know? Look, frankly, I, I think Jung had every right to do the Red Book to save himself from schizophrenia, basically. But I don't know if we have a right to read it. Do you think he That's would have published it? No. It did go to publishers at one point. He thought about it. Yeah, but I, I don't think, I think his, I think his better mind would have convinced him not to get it published. 
And there's rooms in Bollingen that the family is still guarding. You know, no one knows what's in there. No one knows the paintings. There are whole chapters of his of his autobiography that still haven't been published because they're scandalous. I was sitting on a casket once in Zurich and the fellow who owned the premises came in. He said, you know what you're sitting on? I said, no. He said, there are three chapters in there from memories, dreams, reflections that the family has refused to allow to be published. One of the chapters was on his marriage to his wife Another chapter was on his lifelong affair with mm-hmm. his mistress, Tony Wolf, mm-hmm. um, which the family didn't want to become public. Did they the, have an arrangement? I mean, she was traveling with him and Emma at some yes. point. So, I mean, we could hypothesize it was. They had an arrangement, but feminists today would say, bully for you, you know, yeah. your bloody arrangement, you know. Mm-hmm. Why didn't your wife, what, why didn't your wife uh, have a lover? Jung basically said, I need my lover because she is my anima. Well, today, that just wouldn't wash. Well, there are places where he's strangely conservative. You know, like you bring up in um, the How to Read Jung book that his theories about anima and anima and his own writing pave the way for a sexual psychology and politics that he Mm -hmm. says is not right, but he's opening the door to that. And the implications of what he is saying is that, you know, that this is, part of us and i mean or you know and i think they talk about it in the lament for the dead too but there's places where he wants the descent and then the return he doesn't yes. want anyone to just descend into things so when the modernist or the transcendentalists go way far into their abstract art he hates it he wants them to go there feel that and then come back and bring it into yes. the world of the ego which is he, you know that's kind of a conservative position you know not politically theory. but very conservative. So Jung was a bag of contradictions, you know. So he, he gave us the the entrance into the study of bisexuality in the psyche, mm-hmm. talking about the anima in men and the animus in women. Um, James Hillman blew that out of the water when he said, if the anima is an archetype, why should it be limited to men? And if the animus is an archetype, why should it be limited to women? And so Hillman spoke about anima and animus in men and women, which is one of the ways, by the way, that Hillman was genuinely post-Jungian because Jungians don't subscribe to that theory. Mm -hmm. But but Hillman used Jung's logic against his own argument, and I agreed with Hillman on Mm -hmm. that. I thought that was a bit of an advance. But if you read um, Jung's essay called Women in Europe, which talks about the increasing masculinization mm-hmm. of women. And he could see right back in the 20s that women were becoming more masculine. Mm-hmm. They were becoming more like men. And in my country, and I'm sure in yours, women now uh, demand the right to do the same sports that men yeah. do. So I mean, He was uh, relatively culturally conservative too. and that, I mean, I don't think there was... I mean, there's places that are definitely problematic by today's standards of what is what is okay to say about race. But he had this attitude of it's okay to go adventure in India. It's okay to go look at yoga, but you don't do it. You're white. You can't do that. I mean, (laughs) and I I just I try and read him with some grace, but that's in there. You know, it it is in there. And, And just as I was saying before, his essay, Women in Europe, ends up with this rather deadening sentence. He said, 
men should remain men and women should remain women. And maybe so, if there had been, you know, a talk radio or something, it would have been Jung who became the crank at the end of his life. And, you know, and uh, even Campbell, he... Campbell was kind of headed that way. I mean, there's there's kind of he died pretty early, but there's some bizarre talks at the end of his life where he's screaming at college students about being Marxist and stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the... All right, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no. So I don't know what Jung would have said about transsexual operations i doubt he would have liked that no when men becoming women and women becoming men um he would have been outrageously against it Mm -hmm. he would say that if you identify if you're a man and you identify with your feminine side then what happens to your masculine side he'd say it would fall into the unconscious become repressed and then it would come back and haunt you well, but if you're not able to hold your anima to the point where you're saying that you need to have a harem because it doesn't fit into your wife, that maybe yeah. is a, you know, there's maybe something going on in him. Well, and he had a even harem. Tony Wolf couldn't deal with the alchemy. I mean, she basically left because he got too into alchemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Tony Wolf, um, of course, ran with his theory of types. Mm. In fact, in fact, I think it was Tony Wolf who suggested the theory mm. of types to Jung, and he took it up and developed it, just as it was the other woman that Jung had a big an affair with, Sabina Spielrein from Russia. He, some people, he, like he wrote in the book that he had, they made music together or mad, like it was kind of allegorical. Do you feel like that was a sexual affair? There's disagreements. Yes. It was. No. Have you seen the film a Dangerous Method? I do. I don't know that I agree with, I mean, the, the S&M part of it or whatever. Um but I don't I, know what's true and what's not true, except it's important to know that the movie. Well, the conversations directed, between him and Freud are almost complete transaction. They're like they're only all, they're like complete transcriptions of what he wrote that they had, yes. like the rap in the bookcase. The, the, the director of that film, that Canadian fellow. Um, Is it Fincher? Uh, Fincher did that one? I can't remember who it was, but he was a Freudian. So he was actually he had an agenda, which was mm-hmm. to make Jung look bad. And he certainly did make Jung look bad in a dangerous method. And he made Jung look like a, a beast of sexuality mm-hmm. with those scenes with Sabina Spielrein. Um, but anyway, the point I was making was that it was Sabina Spielrein who said to Jung that she felt there was a masculine element in women and a mm-hmm. feminine element in men in a conversation during their sexual affair. I don't know if that S&M stuff happened at all. That could be just part of the movie. But Jung said that's a great idea, and and he ran with it and developed his theory of contrasexuality. So, Mm. you know, Jung owed a lot to the women around him and worked with him, especially Tony Wolfe and Sabina Spielrein. Um, But he didn't always give them the acknowledgement that they Mm. deserved. So he was a typical patriarch, a man of his time. Mm. And what kind of an appalling life did Emma Jung have mm. as he went and off? She was the one that paid for all of it. I mean, it was her she dime. Bailed him out. Yeah. When he couldn't when he have had, explored any of that without the funding that she I allowed agree. because it was not a she, profitable endeavor to She was to, very rich, one of the richest women in Switzerland. And um you know, he lost his job. He had to give up his job because he was going psychotic. 
at the that, end of that scene movie. in the movie i do love um where freud and jung are going to the different places on the boat and freud is trying to have this father posture and have mm. authority over jung and then jung is going upstairs because his wife has booked him first class and freud is going down yeah. into the and he's and Ewan kind of says, "Oh, I'm sorry, my wife booked the tickets. I didn't yes. do it." It's and... a great scene, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I love that moment. Actually, uh, it's quite moving because Freud was the one without money, and he and was Jung... Jewish too. I mean, he dealt with yeah. anti-Semitism a lot. Yeah, and Jung had a fortune, mm-hmm. so he didn't need to work. He didn't even need to see patients mm-hmm. because they had enough money, and um, his financial situation was very secure. And so, um, and then, of course, late in life, well, midlife, actually, a lot of American rich people came over to Switzerland mm-hmm. to fund him as well, like the Mellons. Yeah. And, you know, the Mellon, uh, the Mellons who, who had been funding major universities, I think it was Yale University, um, and set up the Bollingen series with Princeton University Press. They paid for all of that so that Jung's, uh, German uh, writings could all be translated into English and published in in America. That he didn't pay for any of that. It was all mm-hmm. funded by his um, benefactors. So he he had a dream run when it comes to money. It was never an issue. Not like most of us. Uh, money is 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 a big issue, and it yeah. was for Freud as well. Well, that's but the Freud, reason taproot therapy existed is, you know, we yeah. left to start this because I was tired of being um, forced yeah. to kick patients out when they didn't have insurance. And I wanted to be I, able to. I can to... remember a famous line that uh, Hillman told me in, while I was working with him in, in Texas. And he said, um, he said, everybody's worried about how to terminate an analysis. You know, when does the transference end? And he said, he said to me, and there were others there in the room, the transference ends when the client runs out of money. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know how you afford to be in analysis for seven years or whatever before you go to Zurich and get your you know second I master's mean, degree to I, get I, the I analytical mean, training. I know. Maybe that's I, one of the reasons that Jungianism is dying as a pure practice. Well, it's so expensive. That's why yeah. it's dying. But... There are some analysts who have a social conscience and a sliding scale. So, you know, if you don't have enough money, some analysts will see you anyway, uh, mm-hmm. charge you less. <laughs> but um, Hillman didn't seem to have a sliding scale. I paid the standard fee. Well, but, he, he um, knew that he could get the money out of the institute that was sending you over, probably. He he knew that I was being funded by big money, and he wanted a share of that too, mm. and, and, as he did. And I don't begrudge him that because he gave me a lot of time. I saw him twice a week mm-hmm. um, for three years, except when he was in Japan. He was always heading off to Japan. In I don't Japan, know that part of his life. Yeah. I wonder what was interesting yeah. to him. There. The Japanese were very interested in his stuff, um, and um, the Japanese Jungians today are very much shaped by Hillman's ideas. You know the architect Leon Creer, who did Poundbury, England, and and um, he's an urban planner, new urbanist. Uh, but he we really? had interviewed him, Leon Creer. He designed the town Poundbury, England, for uh, Prince Charles and in, in uh, England, and then he did. Uh, oh. 
some like communities here, the new urbanist communities like Seaside. Oh, yeah. We just, he's, he's older. We interviewed him on this about some of the Jungian applications of in visual archetypes and architecture. And yeah. he had met Hillman and he's told me that Hillman told him when you go to Europe, the, the buildings, the arc, the eye is pulled up so that you look at heaven. And when you go to an American building, there's a drop ceiling with a fluorescent light so that you look at hell. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, dear. But look, um, Hillman hasn't made much impression in the United Kingdom. They don't mm -hmm. like him. They see him as a kind of a trickster and, and an egotistical maniac. He's too much of a, a, a rebel. I mean, the, the, the British mm. like a kind of authoritarian or traditional thing. And his thing was yeah. to blow up every tradition for no reason. Yes, exactly. And the, the British don't like that. And as for Australia here, they've never, no one in my country has ever heard of Hillman. Mm -hmm. And they wonder why I spent so much time with him. Well, he was a major figure mm -hmm. um, and probably one of the first truly creative Jungians who reached out to a broader audience, um, particularly that book you mentioned. Um, uh, we've had a thousand years, or no, we've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world's getting worse. Mm -hmm. I didn't know, though, that he was on right-wing radio about that. Is that what you said? Yeah, um, so the the a lot of the talks that I have, I don't know when they were recorded. I don't know what they are. The recording quality is awful, and they've been ripped from digital to, they've been ripped from basically analog tapes. So when so I was getting into Jung, there was like a giant file that somebody had put up on the internet that you sh oh. shared files on something called BitTorrent at that point. And oh. so it's just terabytes and terabytes of Jungian talks. And so I heard everything more Hillman, Bly, all these people said for their entire careers. But so you heard it change too, because, you know, they talked, you know, from the seventies until the nineties, a lot of them, call shed and all the and so, but one of the appearances was Hillman on the radio, kind of having this reactionary. He was talking um, to, uh, I'm not, I don't know the name of the program, but he was saying basically like, therapy's making us weak. We have to be tougher. And, you know, it's just the yeah. kind of reactionary stuff that yeah. Yeah. seems well, silly. Hillman went to a peace conference during the early 1980s in New York and and gave this most crazy talk about the need for war mm -hmm. um and i said to him why did you do that for i mean you, you're trying hard to make yourself unpopular <laughs> imagine going to a peace conference and talking up war he and, couldn't um, help it it was this unconscious trickster yeah. and, and rebellious boy rebellious. You know? he wanted rebellious. somebody to put him in his place and and, and tell he, him Denise Levitov almost smashed him at that conference, you know. I mean, she basically said, how dare you come here and talk about the, the virtues of war? And then, he ha and then he had the temerity to write a whole book on it um, called the, Necess uh, the Need for War or something. Do you know that book? Is it The Glorious Love of War? That's a different author. Yeah, it's, it? Is the that glorious, yeah, The Glorious yeah. Love of War. I mean, what crazy crap was that all about, you know? I mean, anyone with their right mind would well, have prayed. I, I mean, like I said, you've got these Jungians with this wound, and the males, yeah. they over-identify with the anima in early life, and then they get yes. the only taste of power that they've had, and then yes. they way over-identify with the animus, and they become, yes. you know, dangerous. It's it's strange. Dangerous? 
I was totally against this bullshit about him praising war. And he said, don't worry, David, I have Mars accented strongly in my astrological chart. I said, I don't care what Mars is doing in your chart. I'm more interested in the, the well-being of the Earth and our future as a civilization. Yeah, in a you time with talk- nukes, you want to talk about, oh, well, Greeks went out in the phalanx and it made men, <laughs> so we should extinct the planet with radiation. I mean, Freud, Freud used to complain that Jung was off with the fairies, but I tell you what, Hillman was off with the fairies uh, mm. as well. And um, this this idea that we need to give Mars a prominent place. Well, I mean, the tradition of Western civilization has been one Mars catastrophe about after another. The the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War. Hillman wasn't joining the army. I mean, he was telling other people to go to war. He, you know, he wasn't signing up for a mercenary company. He was sitting in an armchair, you know, he was in his Eames chair writing about how great war was. I I just said to him, this is just bonkers. This is crazy stuff. Um, He said, um, I can't remember what he said, but I was so appalled. And then the next thing I heard, it, it, it linked up Robert Bly with a men's movement, yeah. which, of course, attracted angry men, angry yeah. young men. And it, it needed but, help. I mean, the, the, the same thing, you know, a lot of those people that I mean, because that's just those people are a dime a dozen on YouTube now. Of you Yeah. Know, you have to eat more red meat and women are trying to make you weak and all this stuff. Yeah, and all that but stuff, they get you in yeah. the door with self-help. That's just cognitive psychology. It's not. You know, they so, the, the the tips work, but then yeah. the prescription after that is that you have to believe all this crazy stuff. I, I wrote a book denouncing Hillman and Bly in regard to this stuff about men. You mightn't have seen it, but no one just the basic insecurity of it is so obvious. I mean, I was like, I remember yeah. people saying stuff like that when I was 13, when I was an angry young man. And I yeah. was just like, no one would say this unless they were deeply insecure. Yeah. <laughs> like, that uh, Robert Bly hated that book. I called it Remaking Men. Um, I don't think it was even published in the States. It was published in London. I'd never heard of it. No, published in Melbourne, which is where I live. And in London, it sold quite well, but I don't think it even touched ground on the US. But Robert Bly read it, and he wrote me this furious letter about, you know, blah, 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 blah. He was just so angry. And Hillman was angry too. And in fact, at the end of his letter, Bly said, I'm going to tell Hillman about all this and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like he was your dad? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to tell your dad how naughty you've been. You I'm just imagining grown men, you know, saying some of these things. <laughs> he, he threatened. Yeah, he said, I'm going to. He said, I'm writing this letter on a plane because. I wanted it, it to be kept secret. That's why I wrote it in a book and published it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I think that the beware the Jungians, you know, I mean, some of them are brilliant. Tom Moore is brilliant mm-hmm. and maintained his brilliance. And I think we can rely on James Hollis um, and uh, Robert Johnson's books are very good, although they're not intellectually oriented. And Robert Johnson's not so good on gender politics. I think he's very, very old fashioned about men and women and about the only person that Hillman even worked with for a while without fighting with them was Michael Mead I mean Michael Mead was the only person that he actually liked 
But Michael Mead is so kind of out there and spacey yeah. that I think they just didn't have enough of an ego to butt heads. But he basically <laughs> fell out with everyone else, you know, because Michael Moore well, or Michael Mead was just drumming and chanting. And so there was no ego to threaten Hillman's, you know, brilliance. <laughs> I think uh, Hillman and Tom Moore, I don't think they had a falling out, but I do think that they had some disagreements. Um I think basically on jealousy, I Hillman was so jealous about Tom Moore's success. Mm. And um, was there he was a big of means? I mean, did he want more financial success? Yes. From- yes. Uh, Hillman kept saying to me he had no superannuation and uh, he wanted more money. Mm. And there, you know, there's his student becoming, writing mm. millions and millions of uh, copies of the mm. care of the soul. I think good on Tom. I think he wrote some terrific stuff. But Hillman wrote basically as an intellectual for intellectuals. You know, he you can't read uh, Revisioning Psychology without mm-hmm. having studied philosophy, psychology, and um, sociology at university. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Um, so Hillman was writing for highly educated people, whereas Tom Moore stepped down the ladder and basically wrote for a much broader audience. And Hillman was very Jungians tend to know way too much. I mean, because it's like to make those connections, you have to know sociology, anthropology, comparative religion, you know, ancient yes. history. And in order yes. just to get your foot in the door, and it's like, who has all that? That's you know, right. right. No, nobody has all that. So, I mean, to read Hillman properly, you need to be about 40 years old and have at least two or three degrees mm-hmm. to make sense of it. Um that's why I think he, he sold himself short when he teamed up with Robert Bly. You know, you got the worst of Hillman coming mm. out and the best of Hillman was written in the 70s and 80s. And I think that none of the Hillman fans uh, had the maturity or the education uh, to actually understand early Hillman, which was the, the main Hillman. Well, he started like, to try and write more broad mainstream, but... When he got rid of, he couldn't quite get rid of the intellectual bent, and so it was just no. pretension. There was, there was no. Well, was, one of know, his books became a bestseller. I think Soul's it was Code. Soul's Code. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think he got off on Opera, the Opera Show, Opera Winfrey Show. Oh right yeah, now. I didn't know he appeared on there. And there, there was his superannuation nest egg that he'd always mm-hmm. wanted. So he did um, achieve a degree of popular success. But I don't think the Soul's Code is a very interesting book. You know, um, it kind of fails conceptually, um, and it's mainly it's not really a theory that I don't know. I mean, there's some interesting and poetic bits of it, but it isn't. No, it's not as good as Tom Moore. Tom had the right recipe, you know, to go yeah. public. As did Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson's book sold in millions. Yeah, you know, his books, he, she, we. Mm-hmm. Uh, his other book called Ecstasy. There was another book by him called Inner Work the, for Harper Collins. You know, Harper Collins made a fortune out of Robert Johnson. Um, he's not often not talked about. I think the envy toward Robert Johnson, who lived in San Diego, uh, was so high that the Jungians couldn't stand even reading him. Well, Hillman was well known as a speaker and he was well known in different countries that kind of liked mm. him. But uh, so many Jungians around him were becoming rich. I mean, Cr- Clarissa Pinkola Estes and these people, they yes. were just the 70s and 80s was like the Jungian yes. heyday. 
and he could never really articulate what he was doing in a way that no. grabbed that Zeke Geist in any kind of interesting no. way. Robert uh, Robert Bly wrote, made a fortune out of Jung, you know, mm-hmm. writing that book Iron John, based on a Jungian reading of the fairy tale of Iron John. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people were making massive money. I mean, Joseph Campbell made a fortune mm-hmm. out of Jung, especially with the power of myth, you know, the TV yeah. series which was pure Jung, but he didn't say it was, and that's mm-hmm. what annoyed me. Even um, his talks on schizophrenia and things, like he's saying yeah. that, and it's like this, you're you're quoting case studies. You know, you have to yeah. attribute this. So I don't think the Jungian heyday's over, by the way, Joel. I think we're going to get more and more of it. We're going It's coming waves. The mm-hmm. 80s was a wave, and the early 90s was a wave you had as you said, Clarissa Pinkola. I, I think right now is too with younger people. It's just that they don't have any money, <laughs> you know, at least in the US. Like yeah. when we were opening Taproot when I was meeting <laughs> with the person who was helping but, me. You know, and then we, there was a big wave with the Red Book. There yeah. was a big wave with that um, South Korean boy band I mentioned, BTS, mm-hmm. the biggest selling album in the history of, of Korea. Mm-hmm. It's just going to go on and on because Jung, there's Jung, something vital in Jung that uh, it has a future. Freud, however, is just going to get more and more looking passe, out of date. Yeah, I, I don't, I never, or Joseph Campbell actually has a pretty good quote where he said, you know, I read Jung and I read Freud when I was younger and I thought they were both interesting. And then I read Jung and Freud again five years later and I didn't get anything else out of Jung, out of Freud. But Jung got hit different, and then I read him again five years later, and I got something else out of the same Jung, but mm-hmm. I didn't get anything out of Freud, and finally I just quit rereading Freud and only read Jung. And yeah, it does grow still, with you over your life in a way that Freud is kind of a one-note thing. I still read Freud because he's such a great writer. You know, he, he writes in a beautiful, succinct He was. Style. Well, there's a just an efficiency love, to the way he presents information. Yeah, I, I love the way he presents his ideas. Um even though I disagree with most of them, but I still admire Freud as a stylist. I admire Hillman as a stylist and don't always mm-hmm. agree with him either. And I tried to reread Hillman's revisioning psychology a couple of years ago, and it was like grating on me a bit. You know, he was mm-hmm. too flashy. He was trying to sort of flash his, his credentials around. I think he wrote that book in order to get a top-notch job Mm-hmm. in a, an Ivy League Northeast American university, but nobody took the bait. Mm-hmm. He, he did deliver that, those lectures at uh, Yale University uh, for the Terry Lectures. Jung delivered Terry Lectures too, um, which were called Psychology and Religion. And um, Hillman, I think there were too many intellectuals that worried about Hillman, you know, Mm-hmm. and worried about his flashy style and uh well i mean if you want to work in an institution you cannot be the rebel you know there's the college does not make no. this person who wants to blow things up even yeah. if they're right you know i i worked yeah. in a hospital for a while and there's this attitude of well sarah has a good idea but tiffany has a phd and we sell phds here so do your time and then we'll listen to your i mean ideas. hillman eventually t- took a job at the university of dallas you know, which is a Catholic university. I don't know what he was doing in a Catholic university, but it was. And, of course, he got he ended up getting sacked. Yeah. 
because he was a rebel and they didn't want him there. Mm-hmm. The psychology department said, you're not a psychologist. And the philosophy. He probably would have agreed with that too. <laughs> I think he did agree. Yeah. And his, uh, the philosophy department said, you're not a philosopher either. You know, and there was. This well, you thing. cross both of those worlds. Your career is English and anthropology and psychology well, it's and a philosophy. Bit like Jung. You see, if you become too disciplinary, the university system doesn't like you because mm-hmm. you don't fit anywhere. Mm-hmm. Jung didn't fit in psychology and he didn't fit in philosophy, nor did Hillman, nor did he fit anywhere. So the university these days just don't even bother with Jung or Hillman. Um, I think I said it something where if you become too multidisciplinary, the universities think you become undisciplined, literally mm-hmm. undisciplined, and you're not following the code of any of the established disciplines. So Hillman was booted out of Dallas University, and by the time I worked with him, he and some of his friends in Texas had formed a new institute called the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture, which was formed by Robert Sardello. Do you know his work? Mm-mm, I'm not familiar. Yeah, I think he's he's written some very fine work in recent years. He's explored the relationship between Jung and Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, mm. and of course um, Gail Thomas um, and the Louise and Donald Cowan from the University of Dallas, all formed this Dallas Institute. Um, And my sponsors from New York came down to check it out, but they weren't impressed. Mm. They just saw it as um, some sort of breakaway group that don't fit into the university system. They They came down to the Dallas Institute and they said to me, we want you back up northeast. And one guy looked at me and he said, there's no good can come out of Texas. And I think he meant it, you know, a real New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I don't know if he was quoting scripture, but, um, it, you know, in the New Testament it says, no, there can be no good come out of Nazareth, um, someone says. I think it's someone called Nathaniel in the Bible. I'm not sure if he was quoting or it was just a coincidence, mm-hmm. but the New York sponsors were not impressed by Hillman or the Dallas Institute. But I I fought against them. I said, I'm here and I'm staying here. And so, you know, I I really enjoyed my time at the Dallas Institute. And I loved my time with Hillman as my analyst. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. And he helped me through my father complex. Mm -hmm. That's, That's priceless. Yeah. And, um, I didn't even know I had a father complex. Um, was the was the analysis, you know, were you confronting things in a directly experiential way or was it a pretty intellectual kind of analysis? Cause, no, it was I, quite experiential. Well, that's good. Maybe that's yeah. what he was trying to, to figure out that's a way to do. That's what was good at. But unfortunately, none of that tra- uh, was translated into his writings. Yeah, that's he, that's what's missing. That's so strange. Yeah. Is he's talking about direct experience, but then yeah. he wants to be a detached intellectual, and it's like that's right. It doesn't work, you know. Because in my experience with with Jungian analysis, it's like I know these complexes, I can feel it, and I'm analyzing it, and it they still have a hold on me. You have to be pushed into going into yeah. the dark place and. Yes. If he probably was effective <laughs> at pushing people, I mean, he, Hillman was effective at pushing people. 
Yeah, I think so. I think Hillman did a lot of good as an analyst, and I certainly have nothing but praise for him at that level. It's only his uh, career that I'm critical of. I, I had one analyst. I had another al analysis before I went to America with a woman, and that analysis was on my mother complex, and that was very successful. Um, but I still have a mother complex. I think these things, you don't get rid of them. I still have a father complex, even though I worked on it with Hillman. Um, or it's just that I know them better. It's not mm -hmm. that I've got rid of them. I know them now. I know my father complex. I know my mother complex. They're friends of mine, close friends, and I draw from them. Mm -hmm. And they draw from me, too, and make demands on me. So I don't think this idea that you work on the unconscious in order to go to a higher or better place. Um, I don't subscribe to that at all. I think you just go back to where you started and know the place for the first time, to quote mm -hmm. to yourself. The Fisher King, that you're going back to the yeah. same place you were as a child, but you're Yeah, you go back to where you the... began. Mm -hmm. I go back to where I began and know it for the first time. And that's a, a got a, a lovely warm feeling to it and i thank hillman for that and i thank my first analyst janice door for that too so i have enormous good feelings and i'm still in analysis today uh with someone because he's so good with dreams i'm not so good with my own dreams have you ever I'm... tried brain spotting have you ever heard of them who brain spotting it's a, a newer uh, brain-based medicine therapy technique. Oh, I've heard of them. Yes, yes, yes. I've heard of brain spotting, yeah. But no, you, I, I mean, haven't. It's wildly psychedelic. You're just looking at a pointer. I mean, that's it. There's that's there's not The person is looking at a spot where your eye dilates, but um, it digs up really amazingly profound dreams very quickly. Um, you know, if you're into dream work, I'd recommend, and, and it only takes, you know, 30 minutes to do it and you're done, so... Mm. I mean, I, I would recommend finding somebody if you're interested in dream work because it's uh, I'd love to know your experience yeah. with it. Um, I've been in every kind of therapy that exists. Or I mean, of course, not every kind, but I, I, I don't think you get just get the training. I think you actually have to be in it as a patient. And Jungian analysis is very different. Well, that's the way analysis. Jungian analysis works. Yeah. yeah. And, well, I, but that, you know, I was in analysis, but I also did internal family systems. I also did cognitive behavioral mm. therapy. You know, I did these different things. And 40 minutes of brain spotting in my life was just different. Um, I felt this awful oh. physical feeling and I realized I'd been trying to run from that and turn that off my whole life. And then just two or three days of wild emotional experiences and, and prophetic dreams. And, um, and it tends to be the experience patients have. I mean, it's, it's growing. I think that's the future of a lot of trauma work. Wow. That's a very good wrap. Yeah. I think we better finish up here. Sure. I'm, yeah. I don't want to take any more of your time but it's no, fascinating no, no, i'm very happy you seem to know so much as i keep saying it's a pleasure it's great pleasure talking to you well um, and maybe um you know the podcast is just kind of an ongoing thing so i'm, I'm sure we could talk again on another topic um yeah you know, we at can some point but we've, we've got a lot of stuff that. about jung and architecture coming up there's um uh, one of the a british academic is doing a lot of work on bollingen so we're, we're trying to find a time to connect and um different things about archetypal applications in architecture is kind of an interest of mine. So. Is that Lucy Huskinson? No, I emailed her and then she said uh, Martin Gledhill was her friend that was doing it. And so then I talked Ooh. to him and 
Uh, I think his name is Martin Gladhill. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, I, I've got two books by Lucy Huskinson on yeah. uh, architecture and archetypes. She said she was working on Nietzsche now, so I wasn't a good time to talk about you. Oh, she's always working on Nietzsche. She did her PhD on Nietzsche as well. Um, but she's a very bright woman uh, who lives at lives in Wales and works at the University of um, um, North Wales there. Um, and, uh, yeah, she does some great work in architecture. But I'm well, out of my depth with architecture. I, I can't I can't say. I can't speak about the topic. Well, um, yeah, I... Um... I, my dad is an architect, so maybe that's a father complex. I don't know. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I, uh, well, it's funny, the, the synchronicity. Uh, like when I wrote the, I wrote this article on Leon Creer's design, and, and you know, he's a big deal that's older. And I'm writing on a therapy blog in Birmingham, Alabama. So it's like, you don't expect yeah. him to see it. But I was writing it, and then I was like, well, my dad's an architect, and I'm writing about architecture, but I'm a social worker. So what if people see it and they're like, you don't understand architecture good and you know, so you know somebody might see it from think you know, whatever and then leon here sent me an email and it's like this is great oh, um, oh that's nice. yeah that's great. <laughs> well that's funny. terrific but you've obviously got a father connection with architecture like i don't have yeah well, so yeah when do you uh what i usually do with the podcast is I, I put it out on youtube and then i also put it out on our podcast the audio of it is there anything that you want to promote or point people to go back to i mean you have a lot of books um anything that you want to promote you know i should have anymore? a website but i don't seem to have a website i'm i don't too old-fashioned but yeah i've done 16 books on the topics that we're talking about some of them you've never heard of, I can tell. That doesn't matter. I don't care. About I buy them when I can find them, but uh, there's, I've got I'm a not, couple I'm of years. I'm not a very good self-promoter, you know. Um, I don't promote myself. I just think that if people are ready to read my stuff, they'll find it. But, you know, I have a lot a of it finds a new life on Audible, you know, that people have these audiobooks, And so somebody yeah. who wrote a book 10, 20 years ago, they do an audio version and then it sales explode. So maybe investing in somebody to read them would, uh, would promote the sales. Uh, someone kindly wrote me a Wikipedia page. So if you key in my name, a Wikipedia, mm -hmm. but it's not updated, unfortunately, it hasn't got all of my stuff in it. The, the criticisms uh, of James Hillman on his page here <laughs> mentioned on that Wikipedia page too. <laughs> are they? Yeah, on James Hellman, there's criticisms of him, and you're, uh, I think they cite, it probably is on making of a psychologist. I'm not sure what they're citing. But oh, right. Okay. Some mentions there, too. I think it was a uh, fellow from Norway that did that page for me, but I certainly wasn't me and, or someone that I know. I just I looked one day and noticed, so there's a Wikipedia page on me. It was sort of like magic. Um, but I don't have a website, as I said, which I should change and i should get into the 21st century sure well if you need help let me know we um, built one for uh for work so it's fairly easy now to get a template and you link to your books and, and different things right. it's right. it's just kind of like making a word document at this point uh, hmm. anyway it's been wonderful talking to you 
Thank you so much for your time. We ran over and I, I appreciate you um, making time to sit down with us because it, I mean, it is fascinating to hear directly from, from you, you know, you read somebody's books, you get a sense of who they are, um, but then you still have questions about, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, details about things that you don't know until you ask. So it's fascinating and I'm I'm sure people will love to, to hear your insights into all these things. Thank you. Well, and as I said, I've lived in the States, so I have a taste about what, America is like. And I saw the good and I saw the bad. I was walking down Washington, D.C. one day, and this guy came crashing out of this department store with stolen goods. And then these police screaming, Stop or we'll shoot. You know, I thought only in America could I see a scene like that. You know, and I was scared stiff because that doesn't happen in Australia. We're not gun. We're not big on guns here at all. You never hear of people or police shooting people in Australia. It just doesn't happen. Um, and they started firing at this guy, and I, I was, I was just beside myself with terror and sorrow for this guy. I don't know what he stole, but it was certainly not worth him losing his life. You know, he might have stolen some sort of hi-fi or a TV or something, but America scares me about the guns there, you know, all those guns. We don't have guns here. It's illegal to carry a gun in my country, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> not in yours, I know, you know. It's very different. The Bear- right of Americans to bear arms is in the Constitution. It is. There's... um. It's a it's it is a very different culture from from a lot of the world, um, but yeah. I think that we've kicked the can down the road on a lot of problems for a long time yeah. that we yeah. can't kick it anymore. Um, I mean, well, not just uh, climate change is a whole nother conversation, but I mean, Australia is maybe the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. So there's things yeah. creating bigger problems there. Um, I, I think than... the world is so tired of waking up and turning on the news and finding there's been yet another American massacre in a shopping centre or a school or a, a movie house. You know, we're just so tired of it. We don't, not not to mention you people, hmm. but... The, we don't the, even see it anymore. I mean, I had people, patients were calling to be seen for a, a workplace shooting and I didn't even hear about it. I didn't even know what it yeah. was. Well, they're so common, you know, they're yeah. so common. It's, it's, the states are scary. I'd rather live in my country. You just you walk you're free here to walk anywhere and you won't be shot. No no one's gonna shoot you. Um a lot of Americans are moving to Australia, partly because of this, you know. We're mm-hmm. a very different culture. A lot of people think we're very American, but we are and we aren't. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag, actually. Anyway, I'm I'm getting hungry. You must yeah. be tired. Yeah, well, what time is it there for you? It's about eight, uh, eight thirty at night. Oh, so I need to get my okay. kids to bed. Um, yeah. but I, I really appreciate your time and just your body of work. It's really nice to meet you and talk to you because um, mm. you know I've been reading it since college. So, um, it's thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much, and um, keep in touch. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, take care. Bye. <laughs>